Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Renee Powers here. And today, in honor of International Women's Day, I thought that we would talk a little bit about international women. So unless you've been under a rock, you know that Russia has invaded Ukraine and is committing catastrophes in Ukraine against Ukrainian people. Our TikTok contributor, Yasi, has a great TikTok about the history of the relationship between U- Ukraine and Russia. So I'm going to link that in the show notes just so you have a little more context. But over here in Feminist Book Club, we are pro-Ukraine, pro-independence, pro-democracy, and uh, anti-Putin. That said, I want to tell you a little bit about some Russian feminist activists. If you are not familiar with Pussy Riot, buckle up. So Pussy Riot is a group of unnamed Russian activists, mostly femme or women. They're musicians. They're a performance art group. They were founded in 2011, and they're known for their brightly colored tights and balaclavas. And about 10 years ago, they were arrested. Three of the members were arrested for hooliganism, which I think is honestly, if I'm going to be arrested for anything, I want to be arrested for hooliganism. But, you know, many have fled Russia since then and before then. Their politics are anti-Putin, anti-imperialist, pro-feminist, pro-LGBTQ, anarchist. They're really influenced by the Riot Girl movement, which is something that came out of the late 80s, early 90s. Our blogger Steph wrote a blog post all about Riot Girl movement. I'll link that in the show notes as well. But 10 years ago, five members put on their, you know, technicolor balaclavas. They went inside a Moscow cathedral and they performed a song called Punk Prayer. And just to give you a little taste of Punk Prayer, some of the lyrics translate to virgin, birth giver of God, drive away Putin, virgin, birth giver of God, become a feminist, the church praises rotten leaders, drive away Putin, fuck Putin, etc, etc. Like I said, three of the members were arrested after this and spent a couple of years in jail. Since then, many have fled Russia. Many of the Pussy Riot members have fled Russia. One woman performs regularly um, without her balaclava, and her name is Nadia Tolokonokova. Recently, she was performing in New York City, and she told the audience, "Um, I hate war. I support Ukraine. Fuck Putin. I hope he dies soon. So she probably cannot make it back to Russia anytime soon with those kinds of things. They're currently organizing, Pussy Riot is currently organizing to sell cryptocurrency and NFTs in support of Ukraine. This is a rabbit hole that I know very little about, I will be honest. I think it's interesting that they're using art to make a statement again. It's kind of what they have stood for over the last, you know, 11, 12 years that art can be um, inherently political. And they are doing that again, right? That they are reimagining how art can create commerce and work towards helping the people of Ukraine. So while those three members were in prison, they accused Putin, just Pussy Riot as a whole, accused Putin um, and the Russian Orthodox Church for completely orchestrating the case against them. 
especially how they were treated in prison. And so a lot of their advocacy now is for the humanization of prisoners, especially political prisoners. Several activists outside of Pussy Riot within the Russian activist community have called, you know, their conviction politically motivated, not in line with the law. And even um, Russian opposition leader Alexei Nalvani, who is also in prison, described them as fools who commit petty crimes for the sake of publicity, but believed that the verdict to convict these Activist was written by Putin as revenge or a stunt that's not dangerous enough to justify keeping the women behind bars. In fact, in 2013, Putin signed a bill imposing jail terms and fines for insulting people's religious feelings. So that was kind of, instead of hooliganism, what it came to be is Pussy Riot offended believers, members of the Orthodox Church because they did this in a church. But they have said, like, we did this in a church because there's a long history of using the church as a platform for political protest. And they're not wrong. Like, this has been going on since the church existed, right? But at the time, there were there was no church service in session when they, you know, got up to perform this. There were only a few people in the cathedral at all. It was mostly done to film the performance to be shared online, which I will link a YouTube video of the performance and their subsequent arrest. It is very interesting and you can get a taste for their kind of punk music riot girl aesthetic. There's an excellent Rolling Stone article that I will link in the show notes as well. Um, Nadia Tolokonokova recently gave an interview with Rolling Stone and it's really good. It talks about kind of where Pussy Riot is now and where they've come from and what they do now to kind of advance the feminist cause, especially in Eastern Europe. Just because all of this happened in 2011, 2012, doesn't mean that they have gone under their radar. They're just as vocal as ever. They have controversial techniques. Are they effective? That's up to you. I'm talking about it, you know, feminists across the world have been talking about Pussy Riot for the last decade. I think that that makes it effective that we are learning more about the corruption in the Kremlin through Pussy Riot. It's when I first learned about how fucked up Putin is and his fake democracy is. And I'm really grateful for an organization, uh, an activist group like Pussy Riot to bring that to my radar. I think intersectional feminism is not just about race. It's also about decentering a Western perspective on women's rights and human rights. So I thank Pussy Riot for that. To end, I have a few book suggestions because of course I do. The first is one written by one of the founders of Pussy Riot herself, Nadia Tolokonokova, and that's called Read and Riot, A Pussy Riot Guide to Activism. The next is about Russian punk more generally. It's called What About Tomorrow? An Oral History of Russian Punk from the Soviet Era to Pussy Riot by Alexander Herbert. And one I'm very excited about personally is Words Will Break Cement, The Passion of Pussy Riot by Masha Gessen. And I think this has been recommended on the podcast before. Masha Gessen's name sounds incredibly familiar. (laughs) I think she's come up in an episode 
a year or two ago. So I have ordered that one. I'm really looking forward to that. It's called, again, Words Will Break Cement, The Passion of Pussy Riot. I will leave links to these, again, in the show notes, as well as Steph's post on feministbookclub.com about Riot Girl nostalgia, as well as Yassi's TikTok over at Feminist Book Club TikTok about the Ukraine Russian history and what's led to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We are not international relations experts here. I want to make sure that's said. We have been following Russia's attack on Ukraine. We have been supporting the Ukrainian people through our dollars. I actually chatted with the Women's March of Ukraine called Marsh Zinok. Think that's how it's pronounced. I do not speak Ukrainian. We donated 10% of our sales the first week of March to Marsh Zanok. They are currently um, taking donations to help women, especially that have been affected by the war. As many of us know, war is especially dangerous for women because instances of rape goes way up. And Marsh Zanok is helping those women find resources and help and um, as well as simple necessities like temporary housing, medicine, water, food, etc. So they're doing really great work over there. I was so honored that they (laughs) just chatted with me on Instagram um, briefly because they've got really big fish to fry right now and we're just little guys over here in the U.S. trying to do the best we can. So again, we are not uh, experts here, but we are humans in this world that are trying to look out for one another. And so I encourage you to do the best that you can to do the same, to look out for women, especially women not in your country on International Women's Day. Um, Yes, it's important to do work in our backyards, but I also know the importance of intersectional international feminist work and so today is a great day to reflect on how you can do that happy international women's day everyone marijita's got another beautiful book review up next if you have not listened to some of marijita's book reviews they are like poetry they are some of the most beautiful (laughs) some of the most beautiful segments that we have ever aired and i look forward to them so i hope you enjoy that as well take care Greetings, friends. I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and I just finished the book On a Night of a Thousand Stars by Andrea Yayura Clark and published by Grand Central Publishing out March 1st. On a Night of a Thousand Stars is a beautiful and poignant historical novel that centers around Argentina's dirty war and specifically one family that was impacted by it. I feel like the American school system fails us profoundly when discussing any world history, especially if we were not overtly involved. So my foundational knowledge of the dirty war was limited to the understanding that anyone perceived as a dissident was disappeared, the desaparecidos, and that their families still struggle today to get information about what happened to them, where they went, whether they're alive or dead. Actually, um, the more I think about it, the more I have a vague recollection of a documentary watched during a high school history class, but the facts are too hazy to be meaningful to me at this point. I'm almost certain that there was no discussion of the involvement, the actual real involvement the United States had in actively supporting the terrorism and murder of the Argentinian people, many of whom were guilty only of being artists, writers, teachers, 
religious leaders, none of whom deserved to be banished from their lives without notice, without a trace. One of the things I appreciate about historical fiction, and I am saying this as someone who routinely fails to finish a nonfiction book despite my true and real interest in the material, is that it allows me the ability for self-education and self-examination. On a Night of a Thousand Stars is no exception to this. Immediately upon completing the novel, which wrenched my heart from my chest and shattered it, I read articles upon articles about Argentina's dirty war, shocked to realize that it extended even until 1983, the year I was born. We sometimes consider such a genocide to be an artifact of the past, but when we do, as I have been guilty of doing, we lack awareness of the atrocities that have been committed during our lifetimes and which are still being conducted now. We deny the existence of such cruelty by relegating it to an earlier time and thus remove from ourselves any culpability. I digress, of course, but it is a good thing to keep in mind. The very cursory reading I did about the time periods depicted in Clark's novel support the truths that she wove throughout her story. Clark begins on a night of a thousand stars during the year 1998, very quickly setting the scene at the home of a wealthy and politically connected family in the United States during a celebratory party. The father of Clark's main protagonist, Paloma, has been appointed as the ambassador to Argentina, and the family is very soon to return there for the appointment ceremony, but the party is interrupted by the appearance of a guest from the past. This guest opens up a window to Paloma's father's past, which drives the remainder of the story and fractures the novel into two separate timelines, a contemporary one and one during Argentina's fraught and violent 1970s. The separation of the novel into two timelines is not just a clever and helpful device, but embroiders both worlds with meaning and depth that would be lacking without the other to mirror it. As love grows in one timeline, so does it in the second. As tension grows in one world, it rises as well in the other until the reader finds themselves hoping, along with the characters, that please, let there be an escape. It's all right if it must be that our beloved character must not ever make herself known again, must remain in hiding, but let them please just make it out. It's a feeling, I can only assume, that many of the families of the desaparecidos have also felt. Let my loved one be okay, even if they cannot be near me, even if I never hear their voice again. I won't tell you how this book ends. I don't need to. It's worth the emotional investment regardless. If I had one gripe with this book, it's that I didn't feel the contemporary storyline needed a romantic angle. That may be my own preference, and it's certainly not because it was handled poorly, I just felt like there was already enough going on. The stakes were already high enough. There didn't need to be a boy meets girl, meet cute under duress kind of deal added in. I have much appreciation for how Clark handled all of the psychological pieces involved, though, including where it related to Paloma's romantic partner, who experienced significant trauma at a young age and whose life had been marked and altered by that trauma. She was deft in her realistic portrayals of the myriad ways people respond to profound loss, to a life lived in hiding, to the ways your orientation to the world is changed when you've been on high alert for so long. She was not voyeuristic about this pain. 
it's not used as a plot point or made to create growth in her main characters. This trauma is not exploited. It is simply there because it is there. It is real. Because it is a consequence of Argentina's dirty war. It's devastating. Simply put, devastating. But On a Night of a Thousand Stars is not only a tale of loss, but a tale of resilience, of perseverance, of trying to do good. It does not wrap up with a happily ever after. But it does wrap up with hope for a new future, or a new way of living in the very real present. As part of my review of materials related to this book, I looked at Clark's Instagram page, at Andrea Clark Books, where she has clips of a documentary project she worked on in the 1990s, which told the story of the children of the desaparecidos. This project informed her debut novel. After reading the book, I definitely want to check out the documentary. Her care for the subject is evident. I think you should look at the book, pick it up, particularly if you liked Cantoras by Carolina de Robertis, which came out in 2019 and concerns the same 1970s time period, but this time in Uruguay. There are some very similar themes there, also extremely well done. Another strong recommendation. That's about all I have to say for now about Andrea Yayora Clark's debut novel, On a Night of a Thousand Stars, published by Grand Central Publishing and out March 1st. Thank you so much for spending time with me again, friends. I really appreciate it. If you're looking for me online, you can find me on Instagram at O underscore Murray. Until next time, be well. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dead-